Yes, of course. Burl Bearer. <laughs> I've known a few writers who were rogues and vagabonds. And I'm Roger Moore. I didn't supply the microphone. Live from the gleaming, streamlined, state-of-the-art studios of Outlaw Radio USA. Now here comes Howard's favorite word, nestled in our secret bunker somewhere in the Los Angeles area. Uh, following program produced by Magic Matt Allen, a true broadcasting genius on the Outlaw Radio Network, True Crime Uncensored. Last time I looked, I was the legendary Burl Bear. Man over there, Howard Lapidus. You, you actually said nestled. Nestled. You want to say nestled. N-E-S-T-L-E-S-D-E-D-E-D-D. Wow. Mark C.G. Boyer, our fact checker, has been checking facts. Hang on, that is. Yeah, that's you. I know. Yeah. Welcome to the only radio program that has built into its contract 90 seconds of technical difficulties at the beginning of every program. show me another show that has that. Come on. No, Dan Zapansky never has that Dan problem. Dan Zapansky has zero problems. Yeah. Emotionally, however, it's another story. I'm angry at Dan Zapansky. He's hosting There's that. Yeah. You're angry at Dan Zuber. Oh, God, you did that, didn't you? Yeah. I had to do it. You did. His Good. frustration, you can do, do it. I can do it. <laughs> That's right. Hey, Steve. Hey, how are you? You're back and not black, but welcome back all the way from Colorado, the land that time forgot. I love making my producer laugh. Steve, Steve, one second, okay? Burl, what? Why is Colorado the land? <laughs> it just sounds it good. It doesn't have no, to no, make sense. It doesn't even sound good. It sounds ridiculous. Dinosaurs are still roaming. They, they are, I guess. Yeah. <laughs> Probably some of them are running for office. Hi, Steve. You're uh, you have a relentless uh, way I of. I by the way, I didn't get that either. No, she lost. <laughs> oh, she did. Yeah. Oh, you're still on that, right, man? Okay. No dinos, no rhinos. <laughs> no, no. Yeah, it's over. <laughs> I'm the first to admit it. Maybe it's over, all right. Yeah. Hi there, Steve Singular. Well, Hello. Hello. Hi. Welcome back to the show. You've been on TV a lot lately. What, what's up with that? <laughs> not, no, not really. I, I was on the uh, Lifetime. Lifetime did a two-hour movie, which I wasn't wild about, and then, the, or, and then they did a two-hour documentary, which I wasn't that wild about either. <laughs> they won't have you, they won't have you back because the they were one. wild about hey, you. Hey, hey, Steve, 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 can I help you with a little something here? Because yeah. I'll get you through it. It's Lifetime. No, no big deal. <laughs> I, I know, I know, I know that. I realize that. I just you're you're a much bigger deal than they are. In one our of those eyes, things where they interview you for three hours and use ninety seconds or less. So that's why I like radio. Yeah, it's live. Well, here we are. You're here for an hour. We're gonna, we're gonna, we're gonna uh, spritz. Yeah. We're gonna talk. We're gonna discuss. We're gonna get off track. <laughs> we're off track already. I, I, trust me. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, years ago, when the Earth was young, back in the old dinosaur days, uh, the the case that refuses to go away. In fact, there's a a true crime group on on Facebook that will no longer allow anyone to post on the topic of Jean Benet Ramsey unless they have new information. Yeah, people are sick of hearing about it, so that's why we're devoting an entire hour <laughs> to 
to the latest and greatest. You wrote a book on the case years ago. Now you updated it. Was there anything to update? What What's the whole point? Yeah, there was a lot to update. The book came out in 1999, and it's called Presumed Guilty, an investigation of the John Benet Ramsey case, the media and the culture of pornography. And the, uh, the book has been re-released in the last couple of months on Amazon Kindle with about 60 or 70 new pages in it. And probably the, mo the most important part of that is that the, the book is, is, to my knowledge, and obviously there have been a number of books written about this, it's the only book that posits really a third scenario in this case. Anyone who's watched any of the television programs that have been on in September, mostly or October, realizes that, that, that it's always framed as an either-or case. Either the Ramseys did it, one of the three Ramseys, and are therefore guilty, or an intruder came in the house and did it, and the Ramseys are innocent. And I wrote in the original book that there's a lot of territory in between those two things that's really not getting looked at or, you know, explored journalistically and perhaps legally. So that was sort of the original idea of the book, that there's some place in between absolute guilt or absolute innocence. So if... If you're at all familiar with the book, uh, let me, I'll give you a little bit of background. Just yeah, please do. Yeah, also, there might be people who are uh, just stumbled into the universe and are unaware of the case. And, and Mark C.G. Boyer has never heard of the case. Uh, so <laughs> Our fact checker. The yeah. case happened in the last week of 96, and in 97, uh, in early 97, I was just observing this as everyone else was, as it was unfolding. There were a lot of reporters and TV personnel in Boulder. All that going on, and the talk radio thing was there'll be an arrest, you know, this week, next week, imminently, somebody will be arrested. It will be one of the Ramses. So that was sort of the backdrop. In, in about mid-January of 97, my wife and I went to a television station in Denver where we were invited to go into a back room, and there was a hacker. Now, this is January 1997. The Internet is not that old, and it's certainly not old in terms of some levels of sophistication that law enforcement might have had about it. We go into the back room, and we, the hacker went into some places that most of us don't know about. We saw real-time videos of girls, about five, six, or seven, being tied up, being hung from a ceiling, being sexually assaulted, et cetera, et cetera. I won't be too graphic with you. But there were things around their wrists, around their neck. Has a video, as we know that the child was found in the basement of her parents' home. With the girl, he would just as they looked, was a revelation to me that all of this stuff was going on in cyberspace that I didn't know much about. As everyone knows, child pornography is probably the greatest human taboo. And before the internet, it was very difficult to trade those kinds of materials. Suddenly, you have the internet, you have a worldwide marketplace for this kind of activity. You can essentially do it without people knowing about it. And it was, it was, again, just sort of a revelation. So the hacker typed in the word John Bonet, 
and there was this feeding frenzy around it with people saying, I have pictures of my kids. I would trade them for pictures of her. I would like to see pictures of her, illicit pictures of her. Do you have pictures of her dead? And it went on and on and on. And you suddenly just, the lights just started going on. Wow, this, this stuff is really real. It's really happening. And what, could there be any possible connection between this kind of activity, the exploitation of really young girls and boys, and what this crime sort of looked like? So for about 100 days, didn't do too much, interviewed some pageant mothers in the Denver-Boulder area and and asked them about uh, anything unusual that, that they had, had happened in the case since the murder. And they all told us exactly the same thing, that there was a photographer who was the primary photographer for child beauty pageants in this area, and John Bonet's primary photographer, a man named Randy Simons, who had absolutely, totally freaked out in the aftermath of the crime. We interviewed five or six of the mothers, and they all said exactly the same thing. He was calling them up in the middle of the night. He was screaming. He was crying. He was hysterical, and he was saying, I did not kill John Bonet. And none of them could make any sense of this because he'd been a, a pretty rational fellow, you know, up until this point. So you again wondered. We're talking about images. We're so you go, did you talk to this guy? Images of small kids, and we're talking about, you know, the the advent of, you know, being able to transfer those onto the internet. So, hundred days go by, nobody gets arrested. There appears to be no movement in the case whatsoever. And I had been sort of watching the district attorney of Boulder, Alex Hunter, who's this very soft-spoken, gentle guy and he's not you know all of us have dealt with district attorneys in one way or another and you know they're kind of tough guys and all of this he's very very much the opposite of that and he really intrigued me and he he wasn't jumping to conclusions or jumping to arrests or or things like that so i called him up and i said you know could i come in and talk to you about the case and you know i was very surprised he said yeah you know come on in and so i began talking with him about what I'm talking about here and that there's this sort of underbelly of the whole you know beauty pageant world that that was out there we we talked to the mothers as i said and they would say things like we had to get rid of certain people there were judges we didn't want here there were other people hanging around Sam, if you're into that that would be the place to go a yeah. magnet for child you know for pedophiles so there was something you know in all of that it seemed like and and so i went to hunter and i told him i mean they he he didn't know who randy simons was he didn't know that you know this was her photographer et cetera, et cetera, and uh, he didn't know anything at all about the internet and what the kinds of things that were going on there and then, you know, he said two or three very remarkable things to me. The first one was, you know, the Boulder police won't investigate this kind of thing. They're fixated on the parents. That's where their entire focus is. And I really can't get anybody, you know, to do this, to look into this. Uh, then he said, you know, maybe, maybe you, maybe Steve, I should go do that and come back to him. Now, you have to stop a little bit and sort of 
most notorious case in the history of the the region or the state. Here's a district attorney saying the police won't do what they need to do. Maybe you should go do it, which would involve breaking the law. Now, I didn't have any computer expertise to do anything like that, nor would I, was I you know, going to go out and break the law. But it was an extraordinary thing for someone in his position to say. And it kind of you know, lays the backdrop in some ways for what's really to come. So, I mean, it's very interesting that you know, it's a common problem that police will fixate on a suspect and not broaden their, you know, their view. For the district attorney to talk about it, that's, that's strangely. And, 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 and for one second, see, back up, I missed it. Break the law in what, what way? Well, I mean, uh, go download, go download child pornography, and you know, see if you can connect it to something. Got it. Okay. I mean, what that hacker was doing at that television station was, I'm sure, on some level illegal, but you know, nobody was talking about that. Yeah, but it was one of the first hackers in history. Right. So you can't, you know, I like I said, I wasn't technologically equipped really to do it, but the the point was how dysfunctional you know, the investigative mechanism was in this case. And people know that the crime scene was screwed up and all that, but it, it's bigger and deeper than that, because here's 100 days or so into the case, there's no movement, nothing's happening, and you're going to send a reporter out to do something that they're not qualified to do. So that's where sort of the backdrop, and then I, you know, I talked to Hunter off and on for a while, and then he sort of withdrew from that. But Burl's original question was, you know, why would you re-release the book? In, in September of 1998, and now we're almost two years into the case, Hunter set a grand jury to look at the evidence, about 30,000 pages of written documents, and who knows how many people testified, since it's all secret. So the grand jury set for 13 months looking at the evidence. And as you know, that's an incredibly <laughs> long time for a grand jury to look at, at a single case. So they did that. Hunter then came out in October of 1999, 13 months later, in a huge press conference. He said, we're not going to file any charges in this case. The grand jury documents were sealed, and they were put to bed. And, and so, again, you're now almost three years into the case. There's no movement, really, of any kind that suggests it will be solved. And the documents that the grand jury has just produced are, are sealed. So my book was written with the notion that there could definitely be more to this than the parents did it or an intruder did it. And it looked like a far more complex case than just that. And so for 14 years, for the next 14 years, those documents were sealed. In October of, 19, of 2013, the Boulder newspaper sued the, grand, the district attorney's office to get access to the, the grand jury's work. We didn't know anything about what they had done. And the mm. assumption was that no recommendations were there to indict anybody. So 
after it went into court, it was an 18-page document, and four paragraphs were released. The other 14 pages, or whatever it is, have never been released. But what the four paragraphs said, again, go back to what my original contention, there's something between total guilt or total innocence, was that the Ramses had exposed their daughter to the circumstances that led to her death, child endangerment. That's count four. Count seven said they participated in the cover-up of first degree of a first-degree murder. So that is not an indictment. That the grand jury recommended those two counts to, for the parents to be indicted on. That is not murder, and that is not one extreme or the other. It's right down the middle that they exposed their daughter to the circumstances that led to her death. So th- that's sort of the foundational reason to to re you know write more in the in the book in the ebook that's now out there and to have it released. There's a lot more to it than that. But from my point of view, you know, right or wrong, that indictment is in the middle. It's not on one hand or the other. And so for 14 years, that was not known. Now, the next part of that is that Patsy Ramsey died in 2006 of cancer. In 2008, there was another district attorney named Mary Lacey. And Mary Lacey, there were developments in DNA technology. Part of the reason that the case has not advanced, as most people are aware of, is that there was DNA on various parts of the body of clothes of John Bonet that don't match any known individual. There were advances in the DNA by the mid-2000s, and Mary Lacey looked at that and said, okay, what, what do we have now? We have DNA in the panties, and the new technology showed DNA on the inseam of the long johns that she was wearing. One of the theories that was that kept saying the DNA is irrelevant was that it could have been placed there by somebody manufacturing this in Thailand. Oh, that gotcha. was yeah. a major argument. However, the touch DNA on the inside of the long john matches the DNA in the panties, and they were manufactured in different places. So very likely, this is probably the perpetrator. You have multiple samples in multiple places on multiple pieces of clothing that all match one unknown male. So the district attorney in 2008 took it upon herself to clear the Ramseys, in this case, of the murder. However... (laughs) This is why you're not getting on your television programs. You have to go a little bit deeper. The Ramses were not indicted or recommended to be indicted for murder. That's not what happened in this case. They were recommended to be indicted for placing their daughter in the circumstances that led to her death. What are those circumstances? So what, so what are those circumstances? Well, we have duct tape on the mouth. It doesn't match anything in the house. We have fiber evidence on the body. It doesn't match anything in the house. We have cord around the neck and the wrists that doesn't match anything in the house. 
We have stun gun marks on the neck. You see there's a very clear photograph of her on the afternoon of Christmas afternoon of 1996. It's been shown many times. There are no marks on her neck. And the next day there are two very prominent red marks on her neck. And we have multiple DNA samples. There are more than one male DNA on her. I mean, that, that's mm. something else that's come out more recently. So you have, but the the DNA that I was speaking of earlier does match one person. There are other samples there suggesting other things. Ooh. I'm, I'm getting a visual image here that you, uh, uh, Steve, I'm getting a, hold on a second, Steve, Steve, hold on a second. When you say these things, I start getting a visual image that goes back to what you were talking about, the, the video that, uh, that you saw when the, the hacker, you know, brought up that stuff, which right. sounds as if they were having a happy fizzies party without the fizzies, uh, you know, two, three people. Uh, you know, in a prearranged sort of situation. But but not at the house, right, Steve? Not at the house. And, and, and uh, am I jumping too far to say the parents took her there? Uh, either that or was transported. And With their knowledge? What, what if you get to the end of the book, of the new book that's just come out, there's a very long conversation with a woman who was very, very close to Patsy Ramsey named Pam Griffin. Pam was the seamstress for John Bonet's clothes, made some of the pageant dresses, was knew the family well, you know, because of that up until the murder, and then was with Patsy on the day after the body was found, which would be December 27, 1996, and they were in a room in the back of the house. Patsy was hadn't slept, was totally distraught, and was telling Pam three particular things. One was that John Bonet had talked to her about a meeting with the Secret Santa on Christmas night. John Bonet had also talked to a neighbor lady named Barbara Kostanek about meeting with the Secret Santa on sun on Christmas night. The neighbor said, No, you're wrong, John Bonet this would have been Christmas Eve because that's, you know, when Santa comes around. John Bizet said, no, it's Christmas night. She told her mother the same thing. And this, based on this conversation, came out on the, on the night, on Christmas night, not long before John Bonet was either transported somewhere or her parents took her somewhere. And uh, <clears throat> so one of the quotes at the end of the book is Patsy telling Pam, I dreamed or I saw John Bonet leaving in a car that night. So she talked about the, the secret Santa, the meeting with the secret Santa. She talked about seeing her leave in a car. And she made a sort of a cryptic reference to Pam that this stuff could not come out because it would be too dangerous and she was never to talk about it. I interviewed Pam in 1997, a few months after the crime. She was a fabulous interview because she had a first-hand account of things in the Ramsey family before the murder, and then in particular on that day after the body was found. And she told me some of this, but she, but she didn't tell me all of it. She just told me that 
Patsy was very upset, and she kept saying, why did they do this to my child? Why of all the children did they do this to my child, etc.? Nineteen years later, and this for anyone who's written true crime or interested in true crime or done journalism or interviewed people or torn your hair out because you can't get what you want, <laughs> this, this is a classic journalistic story. Nineteen years later, on June 1st of this year, called her up and needed to ask her about something else. I had literally not spoken to her since 1997. I didn't know that she testified before the grand jury and told them certain things, which has some relevance to this story. Then she began to talk again. She went back to the same day, that December 27th, and she said those three particular things, which I had never heard before. Why did she do that? Because her loyalty was to Patsy. Patsy's been dead for 10 years. Pam had a, a young daughter who was in the pageant world, not young, a teenage daughter at that time, and she has obviously grown up. So there, there was a great deal of fear around talking about this stuff, and Patsy had said to her that very day, don't talk about this because it's, go, it's too dangerous to talk about. Pam was interviewed by the police, and she never talked about any of this, and they never really dug into any of this because the only questions they wanted to ask her was what kind of a mother's Patsy Ramsey. Mm-hmm. That's where their fixation was, as I said earlier. So the my suggestion a long time ago is that you've got to get out of this box of only two scenarios. There are only two possibilities. This is one of the most complex crimes, according to people like Dr. Henry Lee, the expert, that anyone's ever seen. It's the only known case in the history of crime in America where you have a body and a ransom note. How can that be? Yeah, that is the weirdest damn thing. Leave things. So there has to be some explanation somewhere for how this came about. And so, again, I, I think... If you start to add all of these pieces up together from the visual stuff that you just picked up on to the evidence on the body that can't be sourced to the house to what John Bonet told her mother and a neighbor the day of the crime, etc., you have, I believe, a much more complex scenario. Now, Steve, let me jump in here, being a true crime guy myself in my spare time. <laughs> yep. When and the guy, the photographer, when he calls these women in the middle of the night crying, screaming, I didn't kill her, I didn't kill her, first thing that, that came to my mind, even being a photographer, is that he was connected to people who enjoyed that type of behavior with young children, that he yeah. may have played a role in setting up, oh, I'll take the pictures for you, and had no idea there was going to be death involved. Did anybody go talk to him and say, well, who all was there? Why are you proclaiming your innocence, and why would you even think someone would suspect you? Right. uh, Until I went to Hunter in April of 97, again, to go back about three and a half months into the case, I don't believe he'd ever been interviewed. I don't believe anybody had paid any attention to him. I mean, again, it's such a striking thing. There's this sort of obvious place around John Bonet where crimes, you know, there could be a criminal underbelly, and nobody was really looking at it. So, to my knowledge, he was interviewed superficially by the police. Uh, There's one other thing about him I didn't tell you. 
that was that those occurrences with Hunter were in April of 97 in October of 97 he had a studio in Denver but he also had a house out on the eastern plains of Colorado and he a town of about I don't know 500 people and on in mid-October of 1997 he was arrested walking down the street naked and when the police apprehended him, he said, I did not kill John. He, he wants to make I, a point. Can, can I ask a question? I mean, right. this is kind of uh, the couple of quick basics. The uh, uh, this is Howard Lapidus asking. The, I'm, I am asking because I've forgotten, and quite frankly. There's so much about this case I've forgotten. Um, but the, uh, the, the ransom note, uh, yeah. the, uh, the handwriting on the ransom note, I, I'm sure they checked... Um, the mother, the father, the brother, um, and it, right. and it was n- n- none of them wrote that. Is that correct? Or we don't. I, or we don't know. We don't. We do not have a definitive answer. There are handwriting experts, you know, out there like body language experts. One will say it's sort of a match. One will say it's not a match. I I believe what the grand jury said is basically true. So that means that I believe that John Bonet, they did expose her to something, perhaps innocently, that went awry. I would suggest this wasn't the first event like this in Boulder. And in this case, something went terribly wrong. And I believe they did participate in some way in the cover-up. And that may mean one of them wrote the note, or John dictated the note, and his wife wrote it, or other people were present because I believe the body was transported. It, it seems totally impossible that you know anyone without intimate knowledge of John Ramsey's life could have written that note, right? Because of you know the famous. I think the money, not the numbers. Yeah, yeah, Steve, can there I, were only two people at his company that knew that number. That some. Right. And no. so the he had a, a vice president in uh, human resources who was a right-hand man with him. The police went to him for eight handwriting samples. So that's something that's not generally known. So I, the candidates for writing the note, I, I would suggest, are several. But I don't see how it was possible for it to have been created without... I, I have a theory I'll pop in here on why you have a ransom note next to a dead body. You ready? Okay. Okay, this one's probably come to your mind as well. Okay. Contrary to popular opinion, when uh, committing a murder or accidental death does not remain, uh, does not keep a person logical and cold. And in the scrambled emotions, there's a debate amongst the people as to what the hell do we do now? Well, how about if we uh, put the body somewhere and uh, put a ransom note? Uh, and then the lobby, you know, well, let's take the, the body back. And in the emotional chaos, the ransom note, which was part of an earlier theory of how to deal with this, is left with the body. No, I think I think I think I think you're a thousand percent right. The uh, and Steve uh, and I'm following your story and I'm probably following it all to, very closely. That the parents had something. Either one or both the parents had something. Uh, and I'm going to go with the mother on this to do with whoever these people were who were, and, and whether the photographer was involved, probably was, uh, with this group of people that uh, uh, enjoyed child pornography. 
uh, and she wanted to she wanted her daughter to do better amongst them in the world of pageantry and uh, sold sold herself out without maybe even knowing it and then uh, then we have the this thing take place that's all so terrible and uh, the the parent or parents both knew and they're therefore uh, created some some kind of a scenario uh, that uh, that the note was all part of etc uh, but it was uh, in my mind am I, am I right in saying probably these uh, child, uh, child pornography people whether it was the, the photographer or not uh, they had something to do with the murder the parents had something to do with facilitating it uh, whether they knew it was going to knew happen that not, yeah. that was going on or not but um, uh, the mother probably wanted to uh, please uh, either judges or pageantry people to uh, to make uh, Jean Bonnet do better in that pageant. Um, just an idiotic thing, but an idiotic thing that got that kid killed. Close. I, I yeah, close. I think, and I think that 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 Patsy Ramsey's major sin was naivety and gullibility. Right. Yeah. And, now, for example, uh, to go back to Pam Griffin, the seamstress, for a minute, and in first interviewing her, she, she said to me, uh, I would never leave my daughter alone with a photographer. Mm -hmm. I instinctively would not do that. Right. And her daughter was in this from the time of, you know, John Bonet, I mean, five, six, Five, whatever. six years old, right. Yeah, and she and I said, well, why is that? She said, well, all the photographer has to do is say, change from the red dress to the blue dress. You're in the room with the kid, change from the red dress to the boom, blue boom, dress. Boom, 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 shot, shot, shot. Pictures, you've got something that right. you can sell. And, I, and again, I saw the selling, the trading going on in that hacker situation. So I don't think Patsy was nearly as street smart as this woman was. And I, I, I don't think that they meant to expose their daughter to, to something, you know, this what did bad. she? What did Patsy mean when she said, don't say anything, it could be dangerous? What did she mean I by that? I think she meant that I think that after the crime occurred, there was probably extreme pressure put on the parents to not say what had happened. Sure. I think, it, I think that numerous people in the Boulder area were involved in this. I think some were rather prominent. There was a lawyer who was known to have pedophilic parties with boys and girls who immediately left town after the crime. There was a city official who was, had been in, connected to some of these activities, a high-up city official who left town after the crime. There were things like this. But to, but to really go back to, to the Alex Hunter grand jury situation, you've got to stop right there and ask yourself a couple of questions. You ask a grand jury to sit for 13 months. They're the, they've looked at the evidence as much as anybody. There's reason to believe that they heard about some of these activities in in all of those in those We got to take a 60 second break, Steve. We'll be right back with Stephen Singular on the John Bunny Ramsey case. We'll be right back on True Crime Uncensored on Outlaw Radio. Maybe I'm the one. Maybe I'm the one. Who Schizophrenic psycho, yeah. Hi, this is Frank Hagen, the gay guy from Outlaw Radio. If you own a cell phone, 
and I know you do because you probably got Grinder on there, but it's time for you to add another app. That app would be for Outlaw Radio through the courtesy of RadioLoyalty.com. My suggestion is that you upload that app for free, mind you. Yes, totally free app. In order to be able to listen to us, the Demons of Decadence, every Saturday afternoon from 3 to 6 Pacific Standard Time or Pacific Daylight Time. And you'll have the opportunity to listen to us smoke, drink, and interrupt each other, which we do a really good job of doing. So once again, RadioLoyalty.com to pick up your free app of Outlaw Radio. Once again, this is Frank. So get off a grinder and get on to Outlaw. Nice. Hi, I am the legendary Burl Bear. This is where I get to hype my books. You should buy all of Stephen Singular's books. And as long as you're spending money, get as much money as you can and buy all books by Stephen Singular and by the legendary Burl Bear. Amazingly enough, I have a brand new one that you can advance order right now called Betrayal in Blue, the true story of the cocaine cops of the NYPD. They weren't worried about being busted by the cops because they were the cops. Betrayal in Blue comes out December 6th, but you can advance order it right now and be the first to clutch it to your bosom joyfully. Except it's also an e-book, so you'll have to pretend you're clutching it. It's <laughs> fair enough. Uh, buy all of them. Anything that's got my name on it, buy it. You don't care if you read it, just buy it. Uh, if you want to read it, it's a good idea. You may enjoy it. If you don't enjoy it, keep your damn mouth shut. And now, back to our regularly scheduled programming. Da, 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 da. You can't cut that short, you know. <laughs> I'm looking up something important to add to this discussion here. Back to True Crime Uncensored with Burl Bear and Howard Lapidus. Mm -hmm. And who else? Who else? Yeah, who do we care? Yeah. Steven Singular is our guest. And, and Featuring uh, Mark C.G. Boyer. Fact checker. Yeah. Notoriously known. Uh, Stephen, if if I could just let you just keep talking, because it is uh, extraordinarily let me, interesting. Let me go back. So, based upon the things we've just been discussing, kind of the theories you're throwing out, which are very much in mind with what I'm saying, a district attorney asks the grand jury to sit for 13 months. The grand jury comes back and recommends two counts of indictment. We all know that the threshold for getting a conviction on those two things, child endangerment and covering up something, is a lot lower than first-degree murder. Why would you ask those people to do all of that work and then not go forward with your prosecution? Why would you seal the indictment so the public, which is up till that point, has spent $2 million on this investigation, has no access to the information, and why, 13, 14 years later, when that document is released, we get four paragraphs. What's in the other 14 pages? What is talked about? Are other people named? Are other situations talked about? As I said, there, there are reasons to believe that the grand jury was exposed to some of this kind of information. Then you have a second district attorney come along and use the facade of DNA to clear the parents of something they were never going to be charged with. That's, that's an outrageous activity for a district attorney.
attorney to do. And she did it as, as her term, second term was ending and she was going out the door. Hmm. Why? I, I mean, it, 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 to me, the entire thing speaks of we don't want to open this up. We don't want to open this case up. We don't want to open the investigation up. We don't want to prosecute anybody. We want this to go away. Well, it's and not going is, away. Yep. Uh, I don't know if you've ever uh, seen the video clip, but I'll tell you where to find it. Our friend Doug Stanhope is a great comedian, good friend of yep. Outlaw Radio, and Matt's uh, played poker at his house and <laughs> got drunk there, a few other exciting things. He has a routine he does on pedophiles on the Internet. Uh, it's about three minutes and 41 seconds. And the basic point is a very funny, if not offensive, sketch that you could you could spend hours and hours trying to find child porn on the Internet. Unless you know some secret, secret code, you're not going to be able to find it. The average person can't find it. You go looking for it, you can't find it. And, and the communication between these people is based upon mutual fear. In other words, if I'm going down, you're going down. You know, if you reveal me, I'm revealing you. It is, it is such a complex process to even get to where the hacker got, to have that degree of trust that, okay, I know what you're into, and you know what I'm into, and it's sick as hell, but so we can't say anything. You know, you can look all day, Stephen, and you're not going to find it. You know, you could have gone with your, even if you were technologically savvy back then in 96, right. 97. That's exactly right. You, you wouldn't know, have that found person, it. person, you know, knew what to do. I mean, just this is, was my level of sophistication, but it, as it was explained to me, if I'm, if I'm in Denver and you're in L.A. and I want to send you a, a, an illegal photograph, I send it to uh, London, it, then it goes from London to Detroit to you know, Beijing to Thailand to Australia. And but even, even us hooking up to, to do that... Is yeah. incredibly complex and very, very difficult. So it's not right. something like, ooh, there's child pornography all over the Internet. You can look for it. You're not going to find it. It has to be a yes. real process. Now, I'm still wondering, being as you got this photographer guy ranting about this, he would seem to be the key to this. He would probably know who was involved. He wouldn't be yeah. saying, I didn't do it unless he knew who did. I think that's exactly right. And there was talk back then, even back then, in 96, or maybe 95, 96, that they wanted to use some of the little girls in, in this area here, you know, to just take their heads, and because they're all, you know, somewhat attractive, and put them on other bodies. I mean, that was, again, something else that photographers in this realm were known to be involved in. And, it, again, I, it, there's no logical answer for why this guy wasn't leaned on hard, except that that's what, not where the focus of the Is police he still investigation alive? was. They just couldn't imagine or didn't want to imagine that, you know, that this kind of stuff did was you, going Did you on talk to this guy? Was he, is he still alive? Have you talked to him? No, he's, I've t I interviewed him a number of times, and I, you know, I... Ask him on one occasion. He's very odd and very skittish. But I ask him about, you know, you know a lot more about this than you're than you're saying, aren't you? And he said, Yeah, obviously I do. My opinion is not that, you know, this again. I I believe this is the kind of case if it ever is solved, would be solved from the outside in, not the inside out. Right. You know, in other words, somebody on the periphery, not one of the Ramseys, but somebody like this with real knowledge would be 
you know, would be compelled to say what they know. I don't think that ever happened. I'll give you another example. There, uh, there were <clears throat> after the non-indictment of the Ramses, there were a couple of people who wrote some very elaborate poems. This kind of conjures up Jack the Ripper, BTK, uh, and sent them to a, a prominent lawyer in Boulder about, and they were all about sort of knowledge of the kinds of these kinds of activities that went on in Boulder. And at the end of the second poem, there were two of them. There were six people named. Uh, four of the six had some sort of tie to this, this kind of activity. And there was a name at the bottom that I, those four or five names, people who really know the case would know something about. There was one other name that I had never heard, nobody else I knew had ever heard of. This was written in 2001 and sent into somebody. In 2006, that guy, the sixth name, was busted for 49 counts of child pornography, possession, and distribution. When, when that all came out, there was a third district attorney that then came into the case, Stan Garnett, and I gave him all this information. We figured out who wrote the poems. We figured out, here's this guy who's busted for child porn. He's in the system. He's in the region. Gave it to the Boulder police. They, the poetry connected all of this to John Bonet's death. They didn't want anything to do with it. Wouldn't, oh, wouldn't even talk God. to you about it. So, I, mean, I hear this so often. It pisses prison, me off. <laughs> and they just weren't interested. So draw your own conclusion. Oh, I mean, I've seen you've seen it before. I have too, where it's a case in a, in a town or when then it cuts close to home and reveals things about the subculture in the community they don't want revealed. They don't want it brought up uh, how narrow was the focus of their investigation, and they want to just bury the case along with the body. Exactly, I think that's what this case is about. I get tired of those cases. It pisses me off. So yeah, but, but it is what it is. It, it is, is what it is. There's yeah. more people involved in this than, than what we want. They're higher up than, than who we would ever want to ever imagine. And, um, you know, the the two guys that split town, where where are they now? Do we know? Um, one one guy immediately left the state and enrolled in a in a theological seminary. <laughs> oh, great. He wants to be a priest. Yeah, okay. Yeah. Which which one was he? he? He was a lawyer. Okay. And the other guy, a city official, moved to France, and under strange circumstances. So the strange circumstances. You know, there, there, there was what are the strange? What are the strange? And there were other people, you know, in the area who were sort of identified as being involved in some of these activities, and and names were given over to the police and the district attorney's office over a long period of time, and. I don't know. I mean, it, I, I think the, the mystery now is not, you know, it's why the case can't be solved. I actually think it could with a different investigation. And well, the good there's, news there's, is that there's, 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 more cover, there. there's more cover. There's more of a cover up than Watergate here. Well, there, there's there's more of a, a total reluctance to deal with the reality of this little girl's death. And I think that's that's really the you know. The well, there's a, there's a, there's one person, and, and help me out here. And this is just obviously a guess, but in this crowd of people, of uh, somewhat prominent people that were uh, in these in the you know took a sick pill, 
there's a biggie. There's a big person, a biggie person, bigger than the lawyer, bigger than the biggie rat and itchy brother. No, no, seriously, somebody fairly powerful. And uh, therein lies the don't, uh, you know, the Patsy saying, uh, be careful. Yeah. Um, you know, I think that's correct. So we've got uh, we've got a bunch of people that were someplace. Something went horribly wrong, and um, and therein lies the death. What yeah. what was the cause of what, what what was she actually? What was her what killed her? Cause her death? What killed the the, the garrote around her neck? Mm-hmm. There's a lot of debate. You know, they say, well, she was hit over the head, and that could have done it. But the uh, <clears throat> there are defensive wounds on the neck. You know, anybody being strangled will reach up to their neck and try and you know, even a child. Sure. According to the you know best minds that study this, will reach up and try and lessen the pressure on their throat. Just naturally. Yeah, and there are definite. <laughs> you know, the defensive wounds where she tried to do that. If she'd been hit over the head and knocked out, she obviously couldn't have done that if, you know, if she'd been strangled later on. So the strangulation was, I mean, it looks, again, to go back to the start, it looks so much like what we were looking at on the Internet. And you can see, you can see from looking at those things that, you know, something went wrong. If, if, if you've got a kid standing on a table and something's around their neck that's tied to something, they fall off the table. Anything like that could have happened. Any, any of these other... Any of these you're other, tied up, you fall off. At, you know, it, it could happen. And I think that's something like that is what it Any of these other kids involved in the pageant have any kind of marks on their body or anything, anything, anything? Well, any there, was a, there was a woman who came forward from California in 2000, and she had helped prosecute uh, somebody <laughs> in California. <laughs> these things, involvement in child pornography and child abuse and she claimed to be connected to one of the people around the Ramseys and one of the things that she said was that you you do these kinds of things to kids over the Christmas holidays so that they've got about 10 days to heal mm-hmm. you know that if there are marks on the body or something you know the neck whatever by the time they get back to school there's nothing to see that's exactly right. And right. she had a lot of information. They took her to the Boulder police. The next morning, the police chief says in the paper, well, you know, we don't find her credible. So, I mean, they didn't, they didn't investigate anything she said. They didn't, they didn't take the trouble of seeing what was connected. So it's, it's just, it's been a debacle in, in that way. Steve, and, uh, you know. Steve, how far, so, up, how far up do you think this went? I mean, what's in, in your imagination... And you see this, you're, you're where I am because I'm getting my information from you, so obviously yeah, I'm developing my theory based I'll on what you I'll tell you saying. one thing that we were told. Yep. And, in the, and told in, re, in recent times, within the last six months, that there was a club in Boulder that was operational in the early 90s, and, the, and early to mid-90s, and of course this crime occurs in the mid-90s, where adults, uh, children were there, they were nude, you know, we don't know exactly what went on, but there was some activities, the primary thing being the kids were always naked, boys and girls, doing things with adults. Some of those kids, we were told, became interns in Washington, D.C., in the offices of, you know, fairly prominent politicians. Mm-hmm. So, I think I think it does go up the ladder fairly high. Uh, there are a couple of names that I've 
been told I don't endanger yourself. But there, but you know, there. I believe that it touched on some very prominent people. Well, uh, Stephen, that's what I call a turtleneck case. The cover-up goes all the way to the top. Uh, I think the moral of the story is, if you want a case solved in a community, you bring in about two or three true crime writers and have them do the investigation. Well, there you go. I mean, yeah, I mean, got... you've got to be somewhat objective, you know, to if you're looking at something like this. Presumed guilty. We're coming up near the end. Uh, I want to plug the book here. I know you will. Uh, Any way we can get Steve back soon, the better. Presumed guilty. Investigation on the John Lee Ramsey case. All right. All right. Thanks so much. It's available right now. Get it. Buy it, read it, believe it. Amazon Kindle. There you go. Thanks, Stephen. Hey, Uh, bro. Yeah. Uh, What's next? Uh, Magic Man Allen and the Demons of Decadence, one of the greatest shows of all time. Something you'll, or at least for an hour or two. There you go.